This is Simulcast, a high-fidelity podcast about healthcare simulation. Welcome to another episode of Simulcast. I'm Jesse Spur, and today I'm stoked to be recording live in person with two excellent guests. It's definitely a nice change from wrestling with time zone conversions of our usual interviews. In this episode, we're going to delve into something that I think most uh, simulation educators have felt intuitively for some time. Simulation is deeply tangled up in culture in almost a symbiotic way. This is usually followed by, yeah, but it's really hard to show that. Luckily, I haven't had to venture too far at all to find two people who have tackled this challenge head on and learned some pretty cool things along the way. One of these people needs no introduction as she is one of my simulcast partners in crime, Victoria Brazel. The second is the very clever Canadian emergency doc, anthropologist, author and adventurer on temporary loan to Australia, Eve Purdy. Hello and welcome. Eve, it'd be great if you could give us a bit of your origin story, perhaps grounded in the time loop that saw you come to the Gold Coast in 2014 and arrive back again last year for a longer stay. You bet, Jesse. So I actually came to the Gold Coast as a medical student about five years ago. I had the opportunity to attend SMAC. Little did I know that that conference would actually change my trajectory a little bit. I saw Vic's opening plenary session on timing stripes and stemmies. I'm sure many of you have watched it. And in the audience as a medical student, I realized that thinking about culture in our hospitals was something that I could get pretty passionate and excited about. So in addition to training as a uh, emergency medicine resident in Canada, I have also simultaneously decided to become an anthropologist and understand how culture affects the way that we do our work in the hospital. Fast forward a few years to SMAC again, this time in Berlin, and uh, Vic and I actually put together that coming down and studying culture in terms of trauma as well as simulation would be a pretty good fit. That's how I landed here. So another shameless underachiever, just like most of our guests on Simulcast. That's really cool, though, hearing that that loop that started and um, kind of progressed with Smack and has you here now. So I guess to signpost this, because it can be a little bit nebulous when we start talking about culture, and I want to make this somewhat usable, um, I thought we'd tackle three main ideas during this episode. One, why does simulation have this symbiosis with culture? Two, how do we understand more about this relationship, i.e. is then nothing so practical as a good theory? Um, and three, what does this teach us about targeting culture as a translational objective in a sim program? So to answer these three questions, we'll stir up the ingredients of a thriving simulation program on the Gold Coast here, um, and also some two pieces of academic work that both um, Eve and Vic have been involved in. So Vic, when talking about culture, we really do need to understand a little bit about the place and the community of interest. So can you tell us a little bit more about Gold Coast University Hospital and maybe particularly the trauma program? Yeah, thanks, Jesse, and definitely good to be on the other side of the microphone for a change. The Gold Coast University Hospital is where I've been working since 2014, and I think this was a nice place for us to look at this issue because I kind of feel like we're fairly good anyway. And of course, I would say this, I feel like some of that in the trauma care has been contributed to by the work we've done in simulation, although I won't necessarily lay claim to the idea that I started out with that in mind. I think increasingly I've just discovered that a lot of the things that I feel like we achieve in simulation are through these relational aspects, are 
through shaping culture and the expectations that we have uh, in healthcare. So the Gold Coast University Hospital is a large tertiary referral hospital. There's about 700 beds. We see 320 patients through the emergency department each day. And perhaps most importantly to this work, we have a trauma service that started in 2014, about the same time as our simulation service started. And that trauma service uh, coordinates the work of all the usual suspects, pre-hospital caregivers, medical imaging, emergency department, anesthesia, surgery, operating theatre, and beyond to uh, like ICU rehabilitation to sort of get the best for our trauma patients. And I guess what we realised in that context was that uh, how these people work together really made a difference to patient care. The other related context that I'll mention now, which is the, uh, also the subject of the second article, is our bond uh, medical program simulation uh, program. And in that, obviously, we have a lot of clinicians involved, and I think we feel like we're trying to recreate many of the real-life challenges that we can anticipate our medical students will have. So to some extent, and I know Eve will expand further on this, um, our simulation program reflects and is integrated with a lot of the work that we do uh, at the hospital. And I think that's been a struggle in many of the other places that I've worked. So this has been very interesting and gratifying for me to see that we can actually get a lot of crossover between more purely education-focused simulation, uh, but also then the more quality improvement uh, team-based simulation that we're looking at in the hospital. So the other thing I'd have to say is, that of course, it's the most beautiful place in the world to live. Pitch noted. Eve, with that little bit of an intro to the two pieces of academic work, would you be able to just give us a, a brief synopsis of them and um, tell us a little bit about where you can find these gems? I guess if we could summarize both of these articles together, I think what we start to see um, is that simulation has both the ability to help us understand culture better, uh, but also has the ability to potentially shape culture in fairly exciting ways. So we've studied this in the two different settings that Vic described earlier. Um, I'll start with the piece at Bond University, actually, in um, the undergraduate world. There is a simulation exercise that is actually a, an entire simulated emergency department that runs over two days and functions very similarly to an emergency department. Medical students have the opportunity to be embedded in this emergency department and essentially practice what they will be doing in the hospital. As an anthropologist, I saw this as a very exciting opportunity to think about the way that we portray emergency medicine to learners um, and use that as an opportunity to start to understand our, our culture of emergency medicine in the way that we portray it in simulation. At the same time, understanding if culture can be transmitted or is transmitted to learners in such an exercise. Um, that paper uh, was recently published in Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training, um, and you can go there for all the details, but the spoiler alert is that we learned an awful lot about emergency medicine. And we also found that simulation certainly is a place where uh, learners start to understand the culture of the groups that they're, um, uh, that they're learning from. We've taken those same ideas, this question of can we understand and can we shape culture right into the hospital and actually into the trauma simulation rooms that uh, Vic was describing. Here, we have actually been interested in understanding what trauma care providers' experience has been with, uh, with the trauma simulations and tried to sort out whether they think it has affected 
um, their values and beliefs and interactions with their colleagues. Uh, that article uh, is soon to be published in Advances in Simulation. Uh, and again, you can certainly go through and see that across a number of domains, people have found uh, that simulation has affected their relationships with their colleagues, particularly the amount of mutual respect that is fostered between colleagues from very disparate groups. At the same time, uh, they have noticed that they've been a better able to understand the roles of other people that are involved um, and what our shared goals are as a community. So I think we're starting to see that that certainly culture uh, simulation can shape the, the cultures that we exist in. Beautiful. And it is really cool to see such complementary publications looking at culture from different angles and the way that sim simulation affects that. So I might just move on and we can start to tackle those three questions that I posed um, earlier in the podcast, which is, and Vic, I might come to you first with this sort of sense that a lot of us as simulation educators have had, that there is just this implicit sort of connection between simulation and culture. And I wondered if you could offer some insights into why that may be the perception that we have. Uh, I know you really want a long theoretical discourse here, Jesse, but I might disappoint you, mate. Uh, that said, obviously there are some educational principles that apply here and probably some theory. Social learning theory tells us that learning is a social process. We learn a lot by observation, by role modelling and by going through experiences together. And I think that is fundamentally what happens in simulation and the idea should be to harness that and enhance that through the conversations we have, the preparation that we have for our participants and the reflective conversations that we have afterwards. So yes, I think there is some theoretical basis. I think at a practical level, you know, we feel it, but sometimes we're not sure what to do with it in terms of this uh, social learning process. And I think this work for me has been a bit of a journey in being able to make explicit this is what we're looking at without it becoming a sort of touchy-feely, uh, fuzzy thing, oh, we're just going to talk about relationships. No, we're going to talk about our care for patients and we're going to recognise that relationships are important. So let's actually use words like mutual respect, shared goals, shared knowledge of each other's roles and our own. And so I do think that um, whether it's in an educational context or a sort of team quality improvement context, it's worth recognising that simulation is powerful. That said, I'd also say there's some responsibility in that because one of the things that we found in Eve's work with the medical students was that as facilitators, we did send powerful cultural messages and it didn't take much for those to look a little bit less positive, uh, such as when as um, emergency physicians we were playing the role of the surgical registrar coming to review the patient, sometimes we were not playing the best version of that surgical registrar, uh, maybe on the basis that we thought this was realistic, but I think it was definitely picked up on by the students and our behaviours have a lot of impact. And I know we've talked about this before, what hidden curricular messages were. Fortunately, I think those messages were well and truly outweighed um, by positive ones, but I think it just means we've got some responsibility to also understand that these relationships are there. So that's my kind of background about it anyway. That, that thought about the role that we have within the transmission of culture in, in simulation is quite interesting. And it also alludes to the point that you were making earlier about the simulation 
service started about the same time as the trauma service. So, Vic, you may have quite a different perspective as someone who's been embedded from the start. What what was the what's the benefit of coming in as this sort of slightly outside, but with an understanding coming into actually study culture, Eve? So I, I think we can all agree that in any type of research that we do, uh, whether it be a randomized control trial or whether it be something totally different like studying culture, that the researcher's positioning plays an absolutely vital role in the questions that we ask, the way that we see the world, um, and really the types of conclusions that, that we come to. I think that anthropologists actually embrace that probably more than uh, than a standard researcher does. And we actually understand that we are the tool um, gathering information and really interpreting that in- information. With that comes the necessity to have um, a fair degree of reflexivity. And what I mean is think about your positioning and research um, a fair bit. So for me coming to the Gold Coast, what I came with was a general understanding of emergency medicine, um, a general understanding of simulation, but really um, not much uh, investment in this particular group and the the history behind it, or investment's not the right word, experience with this particular group. Um, and so a bit of a blank slate to start to ask questions. Um, one of the most important things I think uh, that we can do is sort out what a community wants and what a community needs. So a lot of my early time here was actually just spent chatting with people from all of these different places and trying to understand uh, what was important to this community. Um, and being a partial outsider actually allowed me to do that, I think, in a way that um, can be challenging if you're actually uh, in it from in it from the beginning. It was definitely something I picked up on in both of the publications and having dabbled, I guess, in online ethnography for some research myself before, the degree in which you describe yourselves as the researchers in these articles doesn't feature in more of a quantitative and even some other qualitative research. So, it's just that's about as deep as we're going to go. That's as far into the weeds of uh, ethnographic research that we'll get, hopefully. Um, But I did want to kind of pick up on the... One of the things that um, you mentioned a little bit earlier, um, Vic, in your sort of little intro blurb, was around using really specific sort of phrasing and things like mutual respect um, and some actual terms. This is, I think, to move on to looking at question two a little bit. How can we actually understand more about the relationships and um, have has this been quite interesting for you delving into some different theory, theoretical areas? We certainly have had all types of fun thinking about uh, relationships. And when you think about what is a, a way that you can study relationships, we were particularly interested in relationships around the work that we do. Um, and there's a number of different theories that that you can use to think about that. We chose to use a theory called relational coordination. So we actually came into this study with a bit of a theoretical lens. Um, relational coordination um, is a theory that helps to describe how we coordinate work that is complex, that is interdependent, and that is often time critical. So basically, trauma care or anything we do in emergency medicine or critical care. So we thought this was actually a great 
theory um, to pin some of our understanding of how simulation might actually affect culture. Um, relational coordination, basically, it's, it's pretty simple. There's three things that come into play. So when we're trying to coordinate this type of complex work, understanding our own roles and the roles that, of other people um, is critically important. That's referred to as shared knowledge. Uh, shared goals, meaning that we have very clearly stated uh, goals um, and priorities for a particular patient or even as a kind of more broadly as an institution is particularly important. And then mutual respect is the third piece uh, that uh, is absolutely critical to complicated and complex work. All of this has to be done in a setting and environment of kind of positive communication strategies. Now, this made sense for us um, when we were looking at simulation and we were looking at trauma, and we thought that this was something that would be actually pretty tangible to providers um, as, a, as a scaffolding for thinking about the effect of simulation. Yeah, I think it's easy to underestimate how much rigor is required to study this. I mean, you know, I'd had my gut feel for five or six years, Jesse, but fortunately Eve agreed to come down and add the rigor to it. Uh, and it does take a lot of doing. So to give you a really practical sense of what we did uh, in our study at GCUH, this was part of a bigger look at those relationships in trauma. But essentially we started by involving all the groups involved in that first hour of major trauma. Uh, and we went to them with a survey that did have some quantitative data, but most relevant to this had a few narrative questions about whether they'd been involved in a trauma simulation that we do once a month across these departments and what the impact had been on them and on their care. And then we kind of brought some of those groups together once we had assimilated and processed some of that data and said to them, what do you think of this? Does this correlate with your experience? And what do you think we can do to improve, including but not limited to simulation-based interventions? And I've just got a couple of quotes of the kind of things that people said that fed into these ideas about culture and relationships. Uh, and I quote, I think the real value is getting to know our colleagues from other departments outside of a real-life stressful situation. That familiarity is then incredibly helpful when faced with a real trauma. It makes sense, but people actually wrote this over and over again that the lessons they felt like they had in the simulation did translate to the real world and as much through the relationships as anything they'd learned about the management of head injury or whether we went to theatre or to CT scan with the intra-abdominal trauma. I think the second piece of this that we sort of haven't made as much of yet is how this then informed our simulation programs. So the groups came up with a whole range of interventions or ideas for improvement about our trauma care, some of which were structural and process related, but some of which were relational and some of which were or were a combination of those things. So we've gone from having this once a month large scale trauma simulation, which we still do and which I think has that impact, to also having then a bunch of spin-off simulation programs directed at specific things. So we've got one now of getting to the CT scanner safe and fast. We've got one that's moved into the operating theatre of looking at that arrival of the the critically hypotense trauma patient who needs damage control surgery and actually simulating that phase of the patient's care. Uh, we've looked at some of the red blanket transfers direct from ambulance up to the operating theatre through simulation. So I think this has also informed what we do. It's not just an outcome of what we do. So that just I hopefully gives a little sense of starting with the theory Eve's talking about doing a lot of hard work in really trying to see what the, all that is and then ultimately having uh, an ongoing iterative impact on the design and delivery of our simulations. I think for me this is what struck me as being the real point at which the two 
pieces of work that you guys have done um, intersect, which is really essentially because you're using this iterative process in the simulation program and the trauma service that there's a there's this kind of iterative transmission of values through the way that the simulations are prepared for, conducted, debriefed, and then there's a change in work practice based around a shared goal or a shared objective that's come from that. And then you do the next sim. And it's so there's that potential now understanding this kind of transmission of values and culture through simulation and through um, the benefit as you sort of mentioned is that you haven't got people playing roles that from their own biased perspectives people are getting to see bits of each other's work that they don't normally see has there been any kind of stories of where people have been quite surprised by the visibility of another area's work and other departments work that they you would usually just hand off the patient and not see I'm kind of putting you on the spot. This is a bit of a pre non-prepped question, but is there anything that's kind of jumped out that kind of surprised you guys about maybe seeing another area's work? I guess one group that has been particularly engaged in this whole process in a way that I think we were uh, very pleasantly surprised by is our CT radiographers have really jumped in at into helping us understand what their job is and how as a trauma team we can help do that better. Also why it's important. So for example, um, some of the narrative information that we got back from the survey was that our CT radiographers actually feel a bit invisible to the trauma team in that the trauma team descends into the back imaging office, don't introduce themselves and uh, just expect that good images will result. What we learned in this process was uh, that they are not requesting that we take off jewelry just to be annoying. It turns out that they actually really need that for good scans. And if we don't do that in the trauma bay, then that's an extra five minutes in the CT scanner, which prevents other patients from being scanned, which prevents us from getting good images. Turns out that they don't want the arms above the head, again, just to be annoying. We get much better trauma scans if the patient's arms are mobile and we can get them above the head. Um, So really understanding what are the features that allow them to do their job better, to get the best images, to better care for the patient, I think just made a whole bunch of sense to everybody. And as soon as that was explained, um, you got the sense that, oh, yeah, we can do those things to to try to help uh, the patient really more than anything. Uh, So I've got a couple of perspectives on this, Jesse. One is, yes, I think I've seen people learn from others. And one is the experience of having some of the obstetric and midwifery teams down for some of our trauma simulations and seeing the way that our team structure and function worked and taking some of that back to the birth suite, uh, which was fascinating to me. The second is as a simulation educator, and I think this is relevant because we all think we kind of know what other people do, but I have learned so much by doing these sims and really getting into the heads of the people that I'm, you know, facilitating a debrief with and seeing just how high performing, you know, our anesthetics colleagues are in what they do and just watching those surgeons in the operating theatre, you get an appreciation, I guess, of expertise that you didn't know that people had, as well as a little bit about their roles. And uh, so that's important. The other thing I'd offer is probably, again, as the responsibility of being the debriefer, is when you think there's an opportunity for that, but it's not happening. And even I talk about that, and we see the example sometimes in a debrief where usually a fairly senior person says, this is what should have happened. This was the right answer. And my response to that is usually to say, 
it's often easy for us to say what's the right answer, but let's talk about how we're going to make that happen. And I think that really sets people back and go, yeah, that's not all there is to it just to say we should have gone here or we should have done this action, but to really explore what got in the way of it. And you don't need to get too far into that conversation to say it's all about understanding each other's position and the competing priorities that we have. Simulcast. That's become one of my favourite um, phrases is that thing of trying to understand why the other way made sense at the time rather than saying that was the wrong way to do it. So I think that's a really, really interesting thing. So I guess to kind of start to move on and get us towards uh, some takeaways that others can maybe apply um, if they're looking at doing their first interdepartmental simulations or they're in the throes of setting up an emergency department simulation program. What are some of the things you've learned along the way that that would affect how you set up and started going about a simulation service now? One of the critical questions that anthropologists ask when they're doing research or when they're working with a community is who should be at the table in all phases of uh, a project from uh, the even just what community should I work with to all the way to um, all the way to the writing and presentation of results. Uh, I think the same questions are critically important when you're designing, particularly an interdepartmental or in-situ simulation, from the design all the way through to um, the delivery of it, who should be at the table. And I think that the answer to that question is probably a little bit more broad than uh, than at what we would think it would be at first sight. So for example, um, why not have a CT radiographer design our simulations with us about how to get to CT fast and safe? Why not have uh, an obstetrician designing our trauma sims? Um, And I think if we can get a little bit more broad and a bit more creative about who can be at the table, I think that 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 is a huge move in the right direction. Even just having those people at the table Having a discussion about simulation will go a long ways in uh, in shaping culture at the institution. Yes, I agree with everything Eve said about who to involve. And we've been very fortunate to have what we might call these important nodes uh, throughout the time we've been doing this, particularly in the trauma service uh, and the emergency department and anesthesia. And one of the questions that I think we still haven't quite answered is, do you need to train everybody in the trauma care process or as might be suggested by some of the literature we've been reading, do you simply need to get on board with some of the key nodes around the hospital, i.e. people who are influential? And I think obviously it's a combination of both. So yes, who's involved? Uh, Yes, how those people are given roles of responsibility and setting those things up. Uh, But I think also just about making this explicit as you're doing it. So there's no doubt I don't go to the uh, intensive care specialists and say, you know, I want to talk about our relationships. <laughs> You've got to say, come on, we're going to go and save a head injury's life uh, <laughs> just to objectify the patient a bit further. But I think there is nothing wrong. People are open to the idea of relationships and culture being an explicit focus for our simulation type intervention. And I think particularly with this work, it makes me feel happier to keep on advancing that process. So talking about it in the planning, talking about it in the pre-briefing, talking about it when you do the pre-briefing in the room as well as your written materials, uh, and then coming back to it in your reflective process and making mentioning of it in your reporting. So I think all of those things mean that you've just prioritised this as an end point and not just the time to CT. We all love our time-based targets 
and they are useful. But of course, none of that happens unless you've done the groundwork underneath it. And I guess this is where it all loops back to thinking about simulation exercises at this organisational level as being translational. Most of us, as by the term simulation educators, have seen the participants as being the object of simulation. And you're talking about relationship, culture, um, the patient's process, a whole range of different things as being the shared object of the simulation. So in a way, there's a relational coordination component approach to that translational simulation that I've really picked up on in reading this, reading your articles and listening to you today. More and more, that's been what's landed on me recently in looking at different uses of simulation is it's the clarity about what the object of the simulation is and less and less it's purely looking at it as the trainees um, from my perspective. There's obviously still a place for that, but um, I think people tend to perform much more like themselves and their sense of interpersonal risk is less when they're all working around a shared objective rather than seeing themselves as the objective. One of the things I think just to kind of finish up on there is that it's come through really clearly that um, the design thinking process of the scenario development is almost as important as the simulation itself. Could we even stop potentially doing the simulation if we start doing these design thinking processes better? Well, it's funny that you even say stop the uh, stop the simulation because one of the outcomes from this project actually was uh, a simulation without a simulation. Um, and so we actually, from this research, started to realize how just how important a team briefing was in the emergency department uh, for teams receiving a trauma patient. Um, it was so important uh, that uh, it, it was a focus of our group, something that we wanted to get a lot better at. Uh, and we realized that we actually didn't need a whole simulation to do that. Um, we have designed a number of cases that get people together to talk about shared knowledge about roles for a just a basically a paramedic handover, um, what the shared priorities for that patient would be in the first 10 minutes. Um, and... Uh, then we go back and do our job um, without actually ever doing a simulation. So I think there there's potential for uh, the effects and the uh, effects on culture and effects on relationships without actually you know a big huge trauma simulation that includes uh, you know sometimes thirty plus people. Um, this is something that that we can think about and do every day. I do think Jesse that one of the aims of this is for us to get better at our reflective conversations around our real patients. And, you know, I've had a lot of chats about the hot debrief or the after action review and that you hope that the habit of talking about things with our colleagues then translates over. The other thing it's made me reflect on is the importance of in situ simulation or not. Uh, and that's because Eve just kept on at me saying, I think the whole thing is we've just got people all in a room together. I think that's true. Obviously, as a simulation person, I keep on pushing back against that and say, no, no, but it is important to actually do the simulation. Uh, I think people need to get engaged at a really authentic way to be able to talk about their work. And there's no doubt with our trauma sins that is hard to do other than in the resus bay. Uh, but it's made me think that as long as we could pre-brief properly, and certainly some of our simulations we do in what Gwen Posner would call an 
on-site but not in situ simulation, i.e. in our simulation room abutting our emergency department. And we do some really good simulations in there that improve our culture, our relationships and our processes without having to be in the recess room all the time. So I think once again, it's just a another call for be really clear, as you, as you just said, be really clear about what you're trying to achieve, recognise there's going to be trade-offs and that a lot of these objectives can be achieved um, in whatever environment we set ourselves out to do. Okay, so I think that seems like a great place to wrap up and I think revisiting our three main questions that hopefully have become takeaway points now is that we've been right all along, SIM is fairly deeply enmeshed into culture and hopefully with these two publications and and the ongoing discussions that have stemmed from this work, we have a little bit more of a vocabulary as to why. Two is that there are some good theories from other practice domains that can help us understand this stuff and it's definitely worth looking at it. And thank you, Eve, for becoming an anthropologist as well as an emergency physician. So that that's helped us along the way a lot and a little trip to Australia to study Vic's health service. Um, and three, I think that we it's that understanding of really being clear about what is the object of the simulation we're doing. And if it's something that a lot of people have skin in the game around, get all of those people involved in the design process. So I'd like to thank both of you guys for your time. We will post links to both of the articles and a couple of other pieces of media that were mentioned throughout the podcast. And don't forget to visit the website at www simulationpodcast.com and check us out at at sim underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks. Join the discussion with Simulcast Journal Club.